Well, I want you to imagine how bizarre and how awkward it would be for a president to not show up for his coronation ceremony. Right, we, even in this country where we don't have a monarchy, we have separated powers and checks and balances, and so the president does not have the kind of power that a king normally would, yet nonetheless, we make a pretty big deal of the president's coronation ceremony. When the president uh, shows up and we've got the military band, we have the trumpets and the big presentation, and it's on every single news station, I want you to imagine that while you're sitting there watching it, he just never shows up. And everyone on the news station is saying, we, we can't find the president. We don't know where he is. That would be awkward. That would be embarrassing. And certainly it wouldn't be a very good boat of confidence, would it be, for us to trust that, yes, the president is going to really be able to lead us into the future when he's not even here for his coordination. Well, as awkward and funny and strange as that story might sound, that has actually happened in human history. And it happened with none other than the very people of God. And so we're going to look at that today. We're going to finally read of Saul being crowned king. The text has been leading up to this for many weeks. Israel finally has her king. And today she's going to crown her king, but there's going to be many strange occurrences along the way. So would you please open up to 1 Samuel chapter 10, verses seven, beginning in verse 17. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah, and he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, set a king over us. Now therefore present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king. Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. Saul also went to his home at Gebeah, and with him went men of valor, whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellow said, How can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. It's difficult for us to underestimate how important this text is. This is a crucial turning point in all of God's redemptive history, and more specifically, it is a crucial turning point for all of world history. We simply cannot underestimate how important the kingdom of Israel is, the kingship over Israel is, both to what God does in Scripture, what God has done in history, and to the geopolitics of the region. 
The establishment of a king of Israel is hard to put into words when we talk about its importance and how crucial it is. Yet, what's so ironic is that as we read of this, this narrative, which the scriptures have been building for us, it's been building the tension. For three weeks now, Israel demands a king. Okay, I'll give them a king. Who's it going to be? Okay, I've picked my king. Well, how is he going to find out? Okay, he providentially brings him to Samuel. Okay, so we're here now, but Samuel doesn't tell him. And we wait overnight, and then Samuel finally tells him. But he goes home, and he tells no one. So we have a secret king that nobody knows. And we're just waiting, like, when are we going to get to the king? We've been talking about the king for three weeks now. When are we going to get the king? And it finally comes. It's finally here. Yet doesn't the text seem pretty anticlimactic? The, what should be this amazing, glorious event of Saul is here, he's huge, he's tall, he's strong, he's handsome, long live the king, we're all excited, king is established, curtains close, credit rolls, happily ever after, right? But instead we have a very anticlimactic text. We have a text that we've been building for this climax and then it's just ruined. And I would argue it's really ruined by two primary elements in the text. The first one is it's ruined by Samuel's cowardice, or forgive me, Saul's cowardice. So Samuel has gathered all the people at Mizpah, and let's not underestimate how important Mizpah is. Remember, who who remembers, what's the the last time we saw all of Israel gather together at Mizpah? It was their great national repentance. It was when they repented to the Lord... And God was bringing judgment on them through the Philistines. They gathered together under Samuel's leadership at Mizpah to repent. So the same thing has happened here. And we also see a solemnity to it because Samuel begins with a rebuke. Samuel begins by essentially telling them, the only reason we're here today is because of your unfaithfulness. You've rejected God, but still in his mercy, he has decided to condescend and give you what you ask for, even though he told you you're not ready for this right now. In God's mercy, he assembles them together for their king. And one other interesting note, we're going to talk about the lots here in a minute, but they casted lots to determine who would become king. The last time the people of God gathered together, and this lot, was, this lot process happened of casting lots for the nation, casting lots for the tribe, casting lots for the person. The last time this happened, someone was stoned to death. There was a man named Achan who was stealing from the temple, and God knew it. So he gathered the people. This is in Joshua 7. They come together, and Achan and his family and his cattle are stoned to death. So here Israel is. They've been summoned to Mizpah. And so they get to Mizpah, so they know this is holy, this is sacred. And then there's this lot process, which they immediately probably affiliate with, associate, forgive me, with the stoning of Achan. So this is a holy, sacred assembly. And they come here to receive their king. Now, we don't know a lot about what the lots were or what they looked like. But most scholars will tell you it's probably somewhat similar to us casting die. Right, the rolling of die. What we would call chance... What we would call random chance event is how they determine their king. So they cast a lot first to to determine what tribe of Israel will the king be from. And then they determine Benjamin. So then they cast another lot for the clan. And it's the Matrites, which is what Saul is of. And then they cast a lot for the person, and it falls on Saul. And so we see that in the Old Testament, lots, the casting of lots were not seen 
as random chance event. But as Proverbs 16.33 says, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Notice once again, we talked about God's providence in one of our previous sermons, His providential guiding. We see it definitely here. God has picked Saul. And of what are the chances, what are the odds that in the basic rolling of die, someone in all of Israel is going to be selected and the lot happened to fall to Saul? We know this is no coincidence. We know this is not random chance event. God has made it known, I've chosen Saul. And this is kind of a blessing because now, yet again, they're not just depending on Samuel's word. Samuel, God chose this kid over here. Well, we don't want him, right? God did it in such a way that the, the people of Israel knew, like, this is God's choice. The lot chose him, not Samuel. So we have the text. They're gathered in the sacred assembly, which is, we're already, you know, building for something great here. And then we're casting lots. Ooh, the right, the right tribe is chosen. The right family's chosen. And now the right man is chosen. The text is telling this really fascinating, interesting story, building up for this wonderful crowning ceremony. And then what happens? Verses 21 and 22. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot, and Saul the son of Kish was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. Well, the Lot chose a guy who's not even here. So are we going to choose another one? Like the people are just like, what are we going to do? Are we going to choose another one? He's not here. Was God wrong? Make a mistake? But Saul is there. So not only has the text been ruined because we're building, building, building. Where's the king? But then it's even ruined additionally because the king is there. But what's he doing? Verse 22. So they inquired again of the Lord. Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Remember, many of these people traveled a very great distance to all gather at Mizpah from all over Israel. And I, I've said this before, I'm going to say it again, they didn't have Uber, they didn't have planes, they didn't have taxis, they didn't even have cars. So this was a long trip for them. So they would have to bring baggage and luggage and supplies for a multi-day thing. And so apparently there was like a specific place that everyone was supposed to put their stuff. So we have somewhere off in the distance a bunch of baggage from their long trips and the king is hiding in the baggage somewhere. Now, there will be some scholars who try their best to redeem this and I think it's noble because the text doesn't tell us explicitly why Saul was hiding. So we don't really know for sure why didn't Saul... I mean, Saul knew what the lot was going to say. He's, remember all the text with Samuel? Saul knew. Why is he hiding? And so some have tried to soften it by saying uh, he was just, this was just an act of humility. He was just trying to show, I'm not eager for this. Uh, you know, I, I, I didn't, you know, manipulate the system here. Like, he was trying to show his humility. I think that's a very real possibility. But I would present to you, I think that just a more natural surface reading of the text, I think the text is trying to imply something negative here. He's hiding He's not lowering himself in submission behind the baggage. He's hiding. I don't know what it is about the circumstances, but Saul has crumbled under the pressure. Now that all the people are here, maybe it's finally hitting him. The responsibility is about to be laid on his shoulder. Maybe he knows the people are... I don't know what's going on in his mind. We can speculate, but Saul's hiding. 
So our story's ruined, right? We're building, building, building. Uh, where's the king? He's cowering. Remember, what was one of the reasons they wanted a king? To defend them from their enemies. Does this look like the guy who's going to defend us from our enemies? He doesn't even want to be king. He's scared of us. What is he going to do when the Ammonites come in? Saul has ruined our narrative. There's no climax here. But Samuel, he's a good prophet. He's a smart prophet. So he sees this awkwardness and he knows how to redeem it. He knows how to fix it. So what does Samuel do? He, he points them to his size. Right? Look at verse uh, 24. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. What does he mean by that? 23 talked about how once he came out of his hiding, he was head and shoulders above everybody else. So their doubt, their fear was maybe tempered a little bit by saying, okay, look at the guy. I'm sure, I'm, I'm sure he could do something with a sword. I'm sure he's pretty strong. So the people yet again, now, now that they've seen his physical appearance, they're, they're back on track. Which is a brief side note. Isn't it interesting that Saul, who is head and shoulders above the rest of every, every man in Israel, I don't mean to be a spoiler alert, but God has already prophesied this, so it should have already been spoiled. Saul's not going to work out for Israel. Things are going to go really bad under Saul. And isn't it interesting that Saul, who ends up not being a good king or leader, physically, by physical appearances, should be. Do you remember what Isaiah 53, when prophesying the coming Messiah, says about his physical appearance? Nothing special. Jesus was, from his physical appearance alone, as average as average gets. He was John Doe of Israel. There was nothing significant about his appearance. He wasn't hideously ugly. He wasn't incredibly handsome. He wasn't the shortest guy, the tallest guy. He was just your average person. Isn't it interesting that the man who's tall and strong and youthful is the one everyone is excited about, but... Maybe this tells us something about how God likes to work in the world. We live in a culture that puts a lot of emphasis on people's physical appearances. Even people who think they don't would often be surprised at how implicitly they do. There's a reason why so many actors and actresses are incredibly beautiful people because surveys will show you most people just typically don't like watching a movie. They don't like focusing their eyes for two hours on a screen if there's not attractive people up there. We love beauty. When we cling to beauty, we cling to strength, but I think God sees what's in the heart. But nonetheless, the people see this strong, tall, young man, and so they get excited again. And so the text starts to get back on track. What did the people end in verse 24? All the people shouted, Long live the king! Long live the king! Now, isn't this where the text should end? Okay, fine. We finally got our sweet, juicy moment. We had a hiccup, but we got it, right? Long live the king. But we're not done with our stumbles. We're not done with our awkwardness. What happens after that? Verse 25. Then Samuel told the people the rights and the duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord, which this is a beautiful thing. So what Samuel has done is he's stood the king in front of the people and said, here's your job description. Here are your boundaries. And we, because we don't live in a monarchy, I think it's hard for us to understand how radical verse 25 is. This truly is incredible. 
the vast majority of monarchies throughout world history, the king was known as what we say a law unto himself. The king was the law. The king had no boundaries. The king had no rules because he's the tippity top. He makes the rules. He is the law. So the king can't break the law. He makes the law. He is the law. He is a law unto himself. And this is why monarchies so quickly become so terrible because you've got evil people with evil intentions who have all the power and nothing can check them, nothing can correct them. And so notice the people of Israel are desperate for a king just like all the other nations. And God only kind of gives them that. He gives them a king, but it's not like all the other nations. This is a king who still has an authority above him. This is a king who has rules and regulations. And again, we've talked about, you can read Deuteronomy 17 to see that. There's probably even more here than Deuteronomy 17. We don't know for sure. But the king was not an abandonment of the covenant. What many of the people were probably hoping for was, we don't think this whole Sinaitic covenant thing is working out. So let's just change our constitution, let's just change our government, and let's do what the nations are doing. Let's have a king. And God says, okay, I'll give you a king, but we're not doing away with the covenant. You're still under my law. You're still my people. I'm still the ultimate king. And so we have here this, what we call a constitutional monarchy, where the king is not a law unto himself, but he has a law above him. And notice, we even have a separation of powers here. Because the king is not the prophet. He is still bound to obey Samuel. Samuel still has a kind of religious authority for Saul. So what we see is this incredible peak into history where, yes, we have a monarchy, but God still has boundaries and checks in it. And God still knows that I'm ultimately the authority over this institution. So this is an important thing for us to keep in mind as we as Christians think about God and government. But nonetheless, Samuel is crowned king. He's read his his, his job description before the people. And yet we have more hiccups. What happens? Verse 25 ends with Saul just sending everyone home. They just go home. And in verse 26, Saul goes home as well. Samuel sends them home. Saul goes home. Isn't that also kind of strange? Here's your king. Oh, long live the king. Now go home. They just go home. Saul's got no crown. He's got no palace. No throne. No white house. He just goes home. Now he's got an entourage. Now he's got a posse. And whom God has touched. But they just go home. And what makes it all the worse? Such a bizarre detail. Verse 27. But some worthless fellow said, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. So Israel is wanting a king, they're demanding a king, and God finally gives them a king, and there's still a handful of people who don't like God's decision. They're still grumbling. They're still upset. I guess Saul's physical stature wasn't enough to convince these worthless fellows. They despise him. How can this man save us? 
So let me remind you of the awkwardness of this text. Yet again, we're building for this awesome crowning ceremony, uh, and then the king is nowhere to be found. He's hiding. Okay, fine. We get back on track. So crowning ceremony, he is king. Well, now go home, and by the way, a lot of people don't like you. They're not even going to pay you homage. The juice has been drained from this story. This is supposed to be glory. This is supposed to be celebration. Where's the party? Where's the dancing? Where's the worship? Now, just go home, and some people here don't even want you. Now, admittedly, there, this drama has been entered, and next week, in the next chapter... Saul is going to put an end to that drama. So there is a tension that we will have some kind of resolution to. But what you'll notice is that the history of Israel is that just kind of is the roller coaster ride for the rest of their existence. Good and then bad, and then some good and then some bad. But it's interesting that in our Bibles, you know, the, the chapters and verse divisions, these are not authentic. These are not put in by Samuel. We put them in. And I think this actually was an appropriate place to break this passage. I think it was appropriate to end the story here. Because we end with this tension. We end with this tension of this, the, the crowning of the king, that the people of God finally have their king, and yet there's just no climax. Some people don't even want him. We end with this tension, and the reason I'm grateful for it is because I think this provides for us an important object lesson to the very same tension that I am willing to bet you have struggled with as a Christian. I am going to argue that we exist in our day and age with this very same tension. This is how we live every single moment. Here's why I say that. I always struggle with what we call Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. You know why I struggle with it? Because it's so amazing. Like, it is the most important thing that has ever happened in the history of humanity. It is the most glorious thing that God has ever done. And we come here and we make a huge feast out of it. It's a huge celebration. And we preach on it and we sing on it and we meditate on it and we talk about it and we discuss it. And we talk about the great triumph of God. The greatest thing God has ever done. He's changed the world forever. And then we go home and take a nap. And then we wake up and go to work on Monday. We come in and talk about how God changed the world forever with the, the resurrection. But be honest, does the world really seem changed? We go to this celebration, then we come home, and, and life is just as ever monotonous as it's ever been. The world just keeps on spinning, and we just go to work, and we deal with our problems. Like, doesn't it seem like Jesus' story didn't get the climax it deserves? I mean, when we think about the gospel, the gospel is a crowning ceremony, the gospel is, as Paul says in the book of Acts, the gospel of the kingdom. The whole gospel story is the story of us receiving our king. Philippians chapter 2 talks about how when Jesus ascended into heaven, he inherited a name that was above all other names. So that at the name of Jesus, every tongue should confess and every knee should bow. The, ascent, the resurrection and ascension of Jesus was his crowning ceremony. 
Acts chapter 2, Peter talks about this in his sermon to the Jewish people too. He tells them, David is not the one who ultimately sits on David's throne because he died and God let him die. It is only Jesus and Jesus alone who conquered death and ascended to the heavens. It is Jesus whom God did not let see decay. It is Jesus who sits on David's throne. So Peter's first sermon to the Jewish people is essentially boils down to this. Jesus is your king. And how do you know he's your king? Because he resurrected from the dead and ascended into heaven where 1 Corinthians 15 says he sits at the right hand of God. And what's he doing there? Reigning over the universe, making all enemies a footstool at his feet. The gospel is how Jesus is a reigning, conquering king who received his crown in his ascension. And we're all going to go to work on Monday. And most of the world doesn't even believe that. This is an incredible story. Where's the climax? Why doesn't it feel sometimes like Jesus is reigning? Why are there so many worthless fellows who despise him and refuse to give him homage? Don't you see that Jesus, doesn't he deserve a better ending than this? Doesn't he deserve a better ceremony? Where's the party? Why all the struggle? Why all the monotony? You see, we live in this same tension every day. We have the greatest story in the world, and nobody cares. We have the greatest story in the world, and if we're honest with ourselves, half the time we don't even care. There's no climax, there's no drama. Jesus is king, and think about this when Jesus ascended into heaven, he ascends, he goes. You realize at this point in time, North and South America weren't even discovered yet. Jesus has just been made king of the universe. None of the Native Americans know that. None of the Aztecs know that. By the way, none of the Romans know that. A small little group of disciples that Jesus revealed himself to, they know the whole world has a king. Most of the people in the world haven't even heard the story. Jesus ascends into heaven, but the Roman world just kept on going. Like there's no climax. And so I want us to end our sermon today with two important perspectives as we live in the tension. The tension of the risen king that so few people seem to care or know about. And there's two things I want us to focus on. The first one is this. The ceremony is coming. The ceremony's been delayed, not canceled. Jesus is going to get his perfect ending. Jesus is going to get the resolution. Turn to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. I want us to see this so that it will bring joy to our hearts this morning. Revelation chapter 22. We are turning not just to the very last book of the Bible, we are turning to the very last chapter of the last book of the Bible. This is the end of the story, folks. This is some of the things that we can expect. Look at the very beginning of verse 22. I would love to read all of 21 as well, but for time's sake, let's just focus on 22 verses 1 through 5. 
John is now coming to the end of the vision the Lord has given him. And he says this, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as a crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. The climax is coming. The Bible here presents, I understand it's in, it's, it's in signs. I understand how the book of Revelation is written. But there's a core here that's crystal clear. And that is the healing of the nations. Revelation 21 describes heaven as the new Jerusalem coming down from the sky. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. The kings of every nation will enter heaven and pay homage to the one who sits on the throne. And all of the kings and all of the nations will come into the new Jerusalem and they will worship the Lamb of God forever and ever as he reigns from his throne over his kingdom. And how does the Bible describe that, that, those set of events? Nothing will be cursed. Everything Adam's sin did and everything our sin continues to will be undone. There will be no curse, there will be no sin, there will be no pain. Revelation 21, Jesus says he will wipe every tear from our eyes. This is the juicy ending that his crowning ceremony deserves, and it's coming. We stand on the promises of God. It's coming. We're going to party. We're going to celebrate. And there will be no curse, there will be no tears, everything will be healed. The climax is coming. So let that make your heart glad. As a matter of fact, one of my favorite songs that we sing, that we were supposed to sing, Behold, our God shall live with us and be our steadfast light, and we shall ere his people be. All glory be to Christ. And that day when the nations are healed and the curse is gone, we won't even know darkness. Darkness won't even be part of your vocabulary anymore. Because we have a constant light. And it's not lamp or sun or LED. It's the glory of God. That's the ending of our story. That's the crowning ceremony. It's coming. So in all of your monotony, in all of your daily workings, in all of your pains, in all of your struggles, remember there is a great ending to our story. We will experience it. It will happen. First thing to remind, the juicy ending is coming. We will not live in the tension forever. Second thing I want us to remember is, until that time, there is work to be done. Until that time, there is work to be done. Turn to Acts chapter 1. I love this story. Acts chapter 1. Look at verse 6 through 11 with me. Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 11. 
So when they, meaning the apostles, the disciples, had gathered together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. What a story! And again, we are robbed of our climax in this story too. Here Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, who has made himself known to his disciples as the resurrected king of glory, has now fulfilled Daniel's prophecy. Remember Daniel's great prophecy that one day we will see the Son of Man ascend to the Ancient of Days on the clouds? Daniel's prophecy is fulfilled before their eyes. Jesus Christ, their Lord and Savior, is literally raising up into heaven to sit at God's right hand. And before they even have time to process this, two angels show up and say, what are you looking at? Some of your translations will even say, why do you stand there gawking? Isn't this, shouldn't we sit here for a minute and just soak this up? Like, shouldn't I just stare at this forever and ponder it and meditate it? No, the angels show up right away, and what do they say? He's coming back. Just like this, he's coming back. This is not the end. This is not something to gawk at. The end is coming. But before that end comes, what did Jesus just tell you? You will be my witnesses. In Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. So the angel essentially said this, what are you standing around for? Get to work. I know this is glorious, but something even more glorious is coming. But until then, get to work. So in other words, because of this great story that's coming, where Jesus will return, and we will live forever in the presence of the throne of God, in light of that, we are no longer allowed to see our daily lives as monotonous. You are not going through the motions. We are ambassadors of the King. Every moment of our life, whether we are evangelizing and preaching the gospel, or we're serving God in our families and in our vocations, or we're giving the world an example, whatever we're doing, we are doing as ambassadors. We are doing proclaiming the King has been crowned and He's coming back. Life is not monotonous. feels that way. It's not. Every waking moment of our church's existence is the church on mission. We are undercover soldiers who have been sent behind enemy lines. I guarantee you, I'm not, I'm not a Navy SEAL, I'm not a former Marine, I've not been in the military, but I can guarantee you that there is a big difference between someone, a military man who's just sitting at his home with his wife and his kids and a military man who's on mission behind enemy lines. Those are different contexts. When you're behind enemy lines, every second means something. There's no such thing as monotony 
behind enemy lines. That's what we are. We are ambassadors of a crowned king, and everything we do is the church on mission. And so I would encourage you to think of evangelism as this very act that we are ambassadors of a king announcing to the world that the king has been crowned. In other words, please do not frame your evangelism in the common terms that you are asking or inviting people to make Jesus the Lord of their life. You and none of the people you talk to have any power to make Jesus Lord. You don't do that. God did that. God made him Lord. Jesus is already the Lord over their lives. He is already their king. The difference between us and the unbelievers is not that we have one king and they have another. The difference between us and believers is just like 1 Samuel. They're worthless fellows who refuse to pay homage to their king. We are the men and women of God whose hearts God has touched. But Jesus is already their king. He is already their Lord. Our job in evangelism is to proclaim him. We go out into rebellious, unbelieving nations and we announce the king has been crowned. The king is sitting on his throne and he is reigning. And you have been summoned by the king to come and adore. Come and worship your king. That's what evangelism is. That's what our daily lives are. Ambassadors pronouncing the kingdom of God. The kingdom has come. Our king has been crowned. Let's end with the lyrics of a song that we are going to sing. For the cause of Christ the king, we give our lives an offering until all the earth resounds with ceaseless praise to the sun. To the king who conquered death to free the poor and the oppressed for lasting peace for life and liberty in the sun. Christ we proclaim the name above every name for all creation, every nation, God's salvation through the sun. Long live the king. <laughs>